Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Mind Out of Matter, Materialist Theories of the Self. There are basically two ways to get modern-day philosophers interested in the history of philosophy. First, you can point out that ideas from long-ago eras are excitingly different from the ideas and assumptions we have today. As Peter Geech once said, the usefulness of historical knowledge in philosophy is that the prejudices of our own period may lose their grip on us if we imaginatively enter into another period, when people's prejudices were different. Ancient Indian philosophy offers plenty of material for this sort of approach. How many contemporary philosophers are seriously engaged with the question of acting without desire, the central topic of the Bhagavad Gita, or with the sort of consciousness monism put forward by Advaita Vedanta? But there is also a second, diametrically opposed strategy, which involves pointing out startling anticipations of modern ideas in the historical record. Today's episode is dedicated to just such a case, the Charvaka theory of mind, which is remarkably similar to a position defended by many philosophers nowadays called emergentism. As the name implies, this is a theory according to which the mind emerges from the body. This means on the one hand that physical properties like chemical processes going on in the brain somehow give rise to mental life. Philosophers sometimes speak of the mental supervening on the physical. Yet on the other hand, mental life cannot simply be reduced to processes in the body. The mind has its own causal powers, and even the most sophisticated scientific theory wouldn't be able to eliminate talk of the mental and replace it with talk of things happening in the brain or elsewhere in the body. The nice thing about emergentism, then, is that it has consciousness and other features of the mind being generated by the body, but not just then hanging around as impotent byproducts with all the real causation happening strictly at the physical level. A nice metaphor found in discussions of Charvaka makes the point beautifully. A spark of flame is produced by rubbing two sticks together, and then the resulting fire can be a genuine cause of heat and burning with the help of other materials. Similarly, the body's composition gives rise to mental phenomena, like thoughts or desires, which can then cause further thoughts and desires. Obviously, this view of the mind is powerfully opposed to what we have seen in other ancient Indian schools of thought. The strongest contrast would be with the Vedanta tendency to make Brahman a mental principle, the cause of all physical phenomena, which may even be seen as unreal. But Samkhya and Nyaya Vaisheshika insisted that humans have some immaterial psychological principle, and more generally, there was a widespread acceptance that the mind or self, if it exists at all, can survive on its own without the body. Widespread though the idea may have been, it came under attack very early in Indian history. Last time, we met the pioneering materialist, Ajita Kesakambala. In support of his rejection of Vedic ritual and its fruits, either in this or the next life, Ajita claimed that the human person is but a compound of the four great primary elements. After death, the person is dissolved, with earth returning to earth, water to water, and so on. Another forerunner of the Charvaka view on mind was a prince called Payasi. Like Ajita, he seems to have lived around the same time as the Buddha himself, and we have a report of his ideas in the Buddhist Nikaya. It tells us how Payasi, 
like an ancient Indian version of David Hume, undertook experiments to show that there is no self separable from the body. These experiments would not pass muster with a modern-day scientific ethics committee. He suggested putting a person in a large sealed vessel and then baking the vessel until the person is dead. We then open the jar, and Payasi instructs, Watch carefully. Maybe we can see his soul escaping, but we do not see any soul escaping. If you don't have a jar that big, then just beat the life out of the person and see if a soul departs at the moment of death. Or weigh someone before and after killing him to see if anything has escaped. Or if you're feeling sadistic and curious in equal measure, you can peel the person layer by layer to see if a soul is exposed at the core. All of this is proposed in a dialogue with Kashyapa, supposedly a companion of the Buddha. Of course, Kashyapa can hardly insist that the soul is detectable through Payasi's gruesome experiments, but he denies the relevance of this, arguing that thrashing a person's body to see his soul is like thrashing a trumpet to get at the music it used to make. Just like the trumpet that is not being played by a musician, the body without soul is inert. Without life, heat, and consciousness, it is incapable of motion, sense perception, and thought. Of course, as a Buddhist, Kashyapa has no interest in defending the idea of the self as an enduring simple entity. His objection is rather a methodological one. Whatever our doctrine of the self, we should not suppose that the mental can be investigated using the same approach we take in studying the natural world. The figure of Payasi is also known from Jain literature, which again makes him an interlocutor in a dialogue about the soul, in this case with a man named Kesi. Payasi puts it to Kesi that an ant and an elephant should have souls of the same size. Why then are the activities performed by an elephant so more impressive than those of the ant? Kesi responds with a metaphor, imagine a hall in a building with no doors or windows that would let light out. A lamp is then lit in the middle of the hall. It would illuminate the entire hall, but nothing further outside. If one then covers the lamp with a bushel, then only the much smaller space inside of the bushel is illuminated. In just the same way, says Kessie, the soul too is reborn in such a body as it is bound to by the karma of its previous existence. It animates it, be it small or big, by innumerable soul units. Therefore, Paisi, you should believe that the soul and the body are different and not identical. The story of Payasi demonstrates that naturalism was a strong undercurrent in Indian philosophy from the very beginning. Like its rival schools of thought, it was a philosophy of path and purpose, but one that recommended living for the here and now rather than in search of transcendental ideals. Ajita and Payasi dismissed the pretensions of Vedic ritual as a means to satisfying desire and rejected the idea that God exists and can intervene on earth. Their skepticism regarding the soul was thus part and parcel of a more general philosophy, which had the potential to offer a serious challenge to the Vedic tradition and also to Buddhism and Jainism, once it was systematized as a proper school of thought. As so often, systematization meant producing a canonical text in sutra form, hence the Charvaka Sutra ascribed to Brihaspati. We saw already last time that Brihaspati, and Charvaka more generally, carried on the early naturalist project with an epistemology that privileged sense perception over inference and testimony. But at least as much emphasis was placed on the naturalist account of mind. Indeed, this topic seems to have featured at the very beginning of the Charvaka Sutra. 
the latest reconstruction of the text has it starting more or less as follows. Next, then, we will examine the nature of the reals. Earth, fire, air, and water are the reals. Their combination is called the body, senses, and objects. Consciousness is formed out of these elements, as the power to intoxicate is formed out of fermenting ingredients. A human being is a body qualified by consciousness. Thinking is from the body alone, because of its presence when there is a body. This is a stunningly forthright affirmation of naturalism, or physicalism. Everything that exists, states Birhaspati, is identical to the elements or to some combination of them. In case we wonder how our complex surroundings could have arisen from such simple ingredients, he adds to further aphorisms, The world is varied due to variations in origin, as the eye in the peacock's tail. Modern-day philosophers might instead speak of the causal history of different things, Yes, things are complicated, but this is because they arose from a complex process of combination and interaction between simpler materials. As stated in those opening lines, Brihaspati's account applies also, or even especially, to the human mind. Tellingly, he doesn't speak of self, Atman, but only of the generation of the human being, or person, in Sanskrit Purusha. He doesn't do his opponents the favor of assuming that there is any such thing as a self that could be independent of body. Instead, the whole person, including the power of thought, is made from the four elements. A certain combination of those elements generates mental life. Brihaspati compares the emergence of consciousness from matter to the way that the capacity to intoxicate arises from the mixture of the ingredients in an alcoholic beverage. This analogy strongly suggests that the mind that arises from matter would have its own causal powers, as modern-day emergentism requires. Earth or water cannot think on their own, just as hops, barley, and water cannot make you drunk on their own. The trick, as any brewer can tell you, is all in what Brihaspati calls the combination, from which arises a new power to intoxicate. Unfortunately, what we find here in the Charvaka Sutra leaves some doubt as to the exact relationship between the mind and its material basis. The problem centers on the use of the noun for elements, apparently here put in the ablative case. As in Latin, the ablative case in Sanskrit can mean several things. Prihaspati might be saying that the mind is made from the elements, that thinking is because of the elements, or that thought is produced out of the elements. This, along with the typically concise and compressed mode of expression in the whole string of aphorisms, left commentators with room to offer several different interpretations. One idea was to say that mind is only the manifestation of processes going on at the physical level, with those physical processes carrying all the explanatory weight. On this reading, Brihaspati was simply identifying the mind with a combination of elements in the body, our mental life would simply be the way that we register the physical processes caused by the combination of elemental bodies. While this may seem a disappointingly reductive view of the mind, it would resonate well with some modern-day ideas. In the late 19th century, T. H. Huxley proposed that mental phenomena could be just a kind of byproduct of physical phenomena. He compared the mind to the steam whistle of a locomotive, which has no role in the running of the train, or to the bell of a clock that doesn't help it to keep time. In the same way, the interpretation we have just been discussing makes Brihaspati's mind causally inert, 
It doesn't do anything in its own right, but is just a byproduct manifesting the elemental combination. Yet, we have already seen good reasons to doubt this reading. Consider again the comparison of mind to the intoxicating beverage. The whole point of that analogy would seem to be that the mind does do something distinctive of its own. Other Charvakas duly held that the mind is a distinct power which emerges from the combination of material elements without being identical to them. There is textual evidence of this disagreement among the Charvakas. Prabhachandra, a Jain philosopher from the 11th century, discusses their views with unprecedented detail, explaining what they meant when they claimed that the mind is a manifestation of the underlying bodily composition. He says that a manifestation puts together well, or refines and perfects, what is already there, rather than bringing into being something that was not there before. As such, the manifestation is not a separate thing, over and above the four elements, not a distinct reality in its own right. Prabhachandra also provides an illuminating discussion of various options open to philosophers who want to explain mind in terms of the body. The most radical proposal is that the mind or self simply is the body. There is an identity between the two. But the physicalist need not go this far. She might say that the mind is one of the body's qualities or states. For this idea of quality, he uses the term guna, familiar to us from Samkhya. This would align with the idea we considered before, that mind is like the train whistle, a mere byproduct. Finally, and for our money the most plausible as an interpretation of the Charvaka Sutra, there is the option of saying that the self is an effect of the body. This would be well captured by the aforementioned idea of mind emerging from the elements like a spark which gives rise to flame. It is again Prabhachandra who records this idea on behalf of his Charvaka opponents. Another insightful opponent of the Charvaka position was the 9th century Nyaya philosopher Jayanta who explained the theory in order to refute it. He confirms Prabhachandra's observation that for Charvaka, the self is not a separate entity. Befitting a Nyaya thinker, Jayanta focuses on Charvaka's epistemological arguments against an independent self. We saw last time that Charvaka grounds all human knowledge in sense perception, so it makes perfect sense for them to argue, as Jayanta reports, that the self is not given to us in perception. Our external senses do not give us access to any self distinct from the body. When was the last time you saw or heard a self? Nor can introspection give us access to the self, since this kind of internal perception is always a perception of something like a particular pain or pleasure, rather than a subject of consciousness. This sounds a bit more controversial, but is actually rather convincing, given the views Chadavaka is criticizing. Remember how Nyaya carefully distinguished the internal perception enjoyed by the interior mental organ from the role played by the self. If the self cannot be perceived directly, perhaps we could infer or deduce that it exists. But again, we've already seen that Charvaka doubted the possibility of inferences concerning things beyond the realm of the senses, and Jayanta confirms that here. He also says that Charvaka explicitly rejected arguments that inferred a separate self from its apparent function in our mental lives. We need posit no self in order to explain things like memory or comparing multiple sensory experiences. These are all things the body can do. 
No better from the Chadvaka point of view would be trying to establish the existence of the self by citing authoritative testimony, such as is provided by the ancient scriptures. Of course, Chadvaka gives such arguments from authority no credence in any case, but they also point out, according to Jayanta, that one can just as well use the scriptures to support a naturalist view of the mind. They cite a passage stating that the self is a single mass of cognition which has risen up out of these elements and is dissolved into them. With such arguments, Chadvaka carried on the early naturalism of Ajita, Kesakambala, and Payasi, challenging the core commitment of the Vedic schools to an autonomous mind or self that can outlive the body. It might be tempting to associate them with the Buddhists, whose famous no-self theory posed a similar challenge to the Brahmanical tradition. But we should not conflate the two movements. Admittedly, Brihaspati does avoid using the term self, but the Charvakas are not like the Buddhists, questioning the idea that the human mind persists over time. They are fully committed to the reality of such an enduring mind, it's just that they believe it emerges from and depends on the body. So, we might say that Charvaka could agree with the other sutra-based traditions that we have persisting minds while disagreeing with them by explaining such mental subjects in a bottom-up way rather than a top-down way. Charvaka is like a mirror image of Vedanta, where the mental arises out of the material world rather than the other way around. On the other hand, this language is slightly misleading, even if bottoms-up would go nicely with the analogy to alcoholic beverages. If it is right to see Brihaspati as an early forerunner of emergentism, then in a sense he does make room for top-down causation. Once the mind is produced out of material composition, it can exert its own causal influence. Thoughts are not inert, but play a role in our explanations of the world. The point is rather that for Charvaka, the thinking subject is not a fundamental explanatory principle, as so many Vedic philosophers would have insisted. It is merely an effect of the body. It's a real shame that Charvaka theory of mind is not better preserved, that the works of the school are lost and known only indirectly through hostile reports. Brihaspati proposed that human beings are physical bodies which can be conscious, that consciousness is something that emerges out of the organization of physical matter and disappears again when the organization that sustains it is destroyed. His position is thus one that resonates powerfully with those taken by most modern-day philosophers of mind. They, too, tend to see an intimate relationship between mind and body, with the physical somehow giving rise to the mental. But we should not underestimate our first motivation for doing the history of philosophy. The spectrum of Indian theories of the mind is in part interesting because it is so different from the spectrum of theories current today. So, before we move on to the Buddhists, considering among other things their searching critique of the idea that each of us has an enduring self, we want to explore more deeply the ancient Indian psychological theories we've covered so far. That will be the topic of an upcoming conversation with Monima Chada. Do keep it in mind, and join us for it next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.